Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Breaching Extinction. This week I had the pleasure of chatting with a dear friend of mine, Lindsay Hooper. She recently graduated from Florida State University, FSU in Tallahassee, not University of Florida as I often mistake it, but uh, Florida State University where she did her master's thesis looking at the compliance rates of ecotourism boats with um, dolphin laws um, in regard to things that Noah has put in place. Um, so yeah, we get to chatting about that and a lot of other things. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Cool. So do you want to give us a little introduction about who you are, how you got into this field um, of studying dolphins? Yes, I would love to. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Yes. <laughs> Of the podcast. Um, so yeah, so my name is Lindsay Hooper, and um, I just graduated with my master's in biological oceanography from Florida State University. Um, so that was last week with a fun, weird graduation. Uh, so basically, the way that I got into this field, um, it's always been the plan for my life. Um, so I've just been super blessed. I'm never one of those people who have not had any idea what I've wanted to do. I've always known what I wanted to do. Um, God just put that in my heart very early on. So I've always wanted to be a marine biologist before I really, I think I understood what that meant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, so that's kind of weird, uh, not really close to an ocean. But um, yeah, I just always loved marine biology, always had a you know special place in my heart for cetaceans, whales and dolphins. Uh, so I knew I always wanted to work with them in some way or another. So that was the plan growing up, and that led me to apply to colleges with good marine programs. Um, so I ended up going to Florida State University for my undergrad. Uh, and there I got degrees in biology and Spanish and had a lot of super cool opportunities there. Um, I was able to work with injured sea turtles doing rehabilitation. I was able to do um, nesting surveys of, of female sea turtles and also worked with black sea bass. Um, they're mean. That's what I, <laughs> I had a lot. Uh, not my favorite fish. Um, so all of this was really cool. Taught me a lot. Gave me a lot of experience. Uh, but since whales and dolphins were still, you know, kind of where my heart was at, I ended up moving to New Hampshire after I graduated. And I studied whales up there. So that was um, fin, humpback, and minke mostly. Every once in a while, we'd see a North Atlantic right whale, which was super cool, really far away. Um, and so that did uh, photo ID and behavioral studies was what that was all about. Um, and then that brought me to Sarasota, where I met you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was where we worked with the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, um, SDRP, for future conversation in this. So I don't yes. have to say that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was my first experience working with bottlenose dolphins. They just do, you know, a bunch of different stuff, but the population studies of the Sarasota dolphin population. Um, and then my whole story kind of came together beautifully in that um, Dr. Fuentes, who I worked with during my sea turtle research, came to me and asked if I wanted to be a grad student on a project involving dolphins that she was planning with the help of SDRP. So it was this whole, all these different experiences I had came together. Um, that's how I ended up back at FSU, which you know I love, in Tallahassee. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yes, that one. And um, yeah, so I've been there for the past two years and just graduated with my master's, like I said. Congrats. That's super awesome. I, for some reason, didn't realize that you also majored in Spanish, so... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm full of wonder. <laughs> yeah, she's full of wonder. She's She can do amazing things. Um, yeah, that's like, it's funny to hear you say, too, that, like, that was put in your heart a long time ago, working with whales and dolphins, because I feel like that's a theme, like, with people in this field. It's just, it's 
it's something that's just in you. Like you don't ask for it. Like you don't have to figure it out. And like all of us know by the time that we know how to speak that this right. is what we're doing. Like, yeah. I talk to people and they're like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So like I became a business major, you know, or I went into finance or like later on in life, I learned I wanted to be a nurse and we're all like five-year-olds with, you know, little marine biology books and stuff. Like, here we go. So <laughs> literally, yes, that's hilarious. But yeah. Okay. So tell us what your master's thesis is. And then you just told us a little bit about how you um, chose it. But like, if there's anything else in that process of how you came to study what you studied. Yeah. Okay. So my master's thesis um, was entitled Compliance of Dolphin Ecotours in Southwest Florida to the NOAA Marine Mammal Viewing Guidelines. Uh, and actually, it, it sounds really nice the way that I came to study it, but um, it was actually the result of everything falling apart. So uh, the original project I was brought on to complete did not end up happening because, shocker, grant funding didn't come through. Mm. Oh, yes. So there I was. I had a whole project, you know, planned out and everything. I had spent about a month doing literature review, looking at photo ID and genetics and biopsy darting to prepare for that, you know, research that I was going to do. Um, and then in September, I found out that we didn't get the grant. So that basically put me back at square one mm -hmm. um, with a sea turtle biologist advisor and uh, me still studying dolphins. And it was kind of um, sort of gut wrenching. I, I kind of felt like this whole beautiful plan that I had envisioned was just, you know, plummeting to the ground. Uh, and so that was kind of really hard to deal with it and to to have that expectation of it going one way and then have it completely turn around. So, um, you know, now looking back, it's really cool because I was able to build my project from the ground up. So I had to do the, you know, find a question and actually design the project. So instead of just following what someone else had already planned for me, already asked for me, I had to do, you know, that whole like old school scientific process, like mm -hmm. from the beginning. Um, and it's really cool because my new project I love and yeah. would not have been as happy with the old one. And so it's so cool. I always, you know, looking back two years later, think that it was everything falling apart and it was really God just like putting everything together in a better way. Uh, so that's cool. Um, and so what happened was, yeah, it all fell apart. I had to start from square one. And the good news was that SDRP was starting um, some studies on the population of Naples dolphins. And so I just went with them, um, which is something that you had the pleasure of doing as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I went with them and, and just kind of helped them on their population study. And while I was there, I looked at the Naples population and, you know, I kind of saw what was going on in the area, you know, and some different things some different issues that the population was facing. Um, and then I proposed a bunch of different ideas that got rejected time and time again. Mm -hmm. And then finally we landed on the, um, you know, the one we came up with now, which is my thesis. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I think the universe has a funny way of doing that. Like when you're really disappointed and sad to let something go, something better comes along. I've definitely found that I've learned that lesson in life in the last like two years as well. I wonder if that's just our age group, who knows? Um, but I'm yeah. glad that you like you ended up happier with the project that you did. So um, how did you conduct your study? Like walk us through um, like how you get the data and like how that answers the questions that you're trying to answer. OK, yeah. So like I said, we looked at compliance of the dolphin eco tours to the NOAA viewing guidelines. So um, for anyone who doesn't know, mm -hmm. NOAA has developed these viewing guidelines for five different regions of the U.S. And they're region specific and species specific. And they basically just tell boaters how best to interact with marine animals to minimize impacts on them. 
Um, so for the Southeast US, which is where my study took place, there are 12 viewing guidelines and they involve, you know, things like stay 50 yards away from the dolphins, um, limit your viewing 50 time. 50 yards, that's it? 50, yes. Oh my God. Just wait, spoiler alert, the boaters couldn't even do that. So <gasps> here's our 300, right? So in the San Juans, it's 400, and then the, the whale watch boats have a special permit to get within 200, but for oh the southern God. residents, it's a special permit to be within 300. Wow. Wow. What a time. Yeah, so ours is 50, mm-hmm. and like I said, spoiler alert, still couldn't even do that. So mm-hmm. 50 yards away from the dolphins, uh, yeah, 30 minutes or less, don't... No sudden changes in speed or direction, which is basically don't induce wake riding, um, which you and I both know definitely not followed. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Uh, A little bit. So, um, yeah, to measure these, like, compliance to these guidelines, I went on eight different eco-tours that we had selected based on specific criteria. And so I went on each twice um, for a total of 16 observations. And uh, basically, I just recorded every single action that could be used to determine compliance by the captain. So we were looking at, you know, approach speed, approach angle, you know, closest distance, all kind of stuff like that. Um, and then we also looked at educational messaging that the captains, you know, told to the passengers. And then also um, we just did some basic, you know, group size of the dolphins and composition and things like that. So um, the thing about compliance though, which is what makes my project sort of unique, um, is that it's not just compliance, right? So obviously you need to measure compliance, um, you know, in order to get current levels and improve it, but compliance itself has so much more involved in it. So, um, you know, captains are actually the ones that decide whether or not to comply. And so when you're thinking about compliance, you know, it's in the hands of a person and their opinions and perceptions and knowledge levels all go into them making that compliance decision. And then, you know, you have your third part of ecotourism, which is the, like the passengers themselves. And so, you know, we know that when you go on a boat, you know, the captain's job is to make them have a good time and to let, you know, the passengers see the animals and enjoy the experience and hope they come back or write a good review and all that kind of stuff. So when thinking about it, what a passenger wants um, also influences a captain's decision on whether or not they comply. So it's sort of this three-piece puzzle Um, And when looking at compliance, a lot of other studies just look at one or two. So they'll have, you know, they'll do base compliance levels and then they'll make recommendations how to improve it with nothing else but the compliance level. Some people are trying to basically make a predictive model of, um, you know, what sorts of things captains consider and rely on, um, you know, in order to make their decisions. And and every once in a while, a study will look at two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nobody has looked at three. And so this is sort of the idea of that holistic view of, you know, there's more than just one or two pieces that go into the puzzle. Um, so, yeah, so for that, I did um, questionnaires and we designed, we designed and distributed them to both captains and passengers. So captains were online after the observations so that we didn't, you know, alert them to everything and, and have bias in the observations. And then passengers were just approached as they got off the eco tour. Um, So that basically, you know, the passengers and captain questionnaires gave us perceptions, opinions, knowledge levels, and then our actual compliance observations gave us those compliance levels that we were looking for. Awesome. That's, yeah, that's awesome. I love the fact that you guys did a holistic view because it's so important. And I think, yeah, it is. I mean, and, and the reason that we're able to come to these conclusions of like a holistic view is because so many people came before us and made mistakes. So thanks to those people. Um, 
That's really awesome. So, um, what did you find? Like what ultimately, what was the result? Are people compliant? I'm going to go ahead and just guess no, because I've been on boats in Florida. Um, but tell me scientifically, like, is that correct? Oh my gosh, Erica, you're Whoa. brilliant. Wow. You're right. Whoa. Incredible. Did I even need to do my master's? I feel like no. that's what you <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Okay, great. So yes, you're right. And um, 100%. But let's go with the scientific view, uh, which will be, yeah, compliance is relatively low in the area. Um, we found that there are certain guidelines that are violated at a much higher rate. So out of the 12, there are seven that are violated 95% of tour oh. observations. And the other five are violated 6% of the time. Is so, it the same? Is it the same like, um, like ones each time? It's the same, like there's the same seven guidelines. Yes. Okay. 5%. Yeah. So clearly we now know which ones we need to focus on. Beautiful. So I love that. So yes, you did need to do your master's so that we can know that. Now we're more specific. Yeah. And then we also found that certain eco-tours, you know, have higher compliance rates than others. And even within eco-tours, so some of them have different captains. So mm -hmm. even within one company, there were varying levels of compliance based on the tour observation, aka, you know, based on the captain. Um, and then as far as with our captains, uh, super frustrating. We found that they claim to know the guidelines. Most of them said they know all 12. They support the guidelines. They think they're fair. Um, they're aware that they're violating the guidelines, mm. yet they continue to do so anyway. I love that, right? Isn't What's the nice? reasoning? Is it like, do they feel that it's safer or... Um, so that's kind of some of the stuff that we have proposed in the paper, you know, and some general ideas are like the main idea I'd say is a disconnect between um, what it means for the dolphins to violate the guidelines on a biological level. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they like the guidelines, but then if you tell them or you ask them, um, you know, is it harmful to the dolphins to approach them? Does it disrupt their behavior? They're like, no. So there seems to be this, they don't understand that disrupting a dolphin's normal behavior is, you know, a, a problem for the dolphins. They think it's fine. Yes. It's a very weird disconnect. That is that a very weird disconnect. I noticed like in the San Juans, like I think that for ecotourism, at least in, in the boating world, I think that they do the best that I've seen because Florida's trash. Um, and then like... California is, there are some, from what I've seen in my like two months here, there's some that, that are okay. There are some that are not. Um, but um, like, it's, I think that if we were to implement some kind of program where like captains and people on the water had to get a certification where they were trained in like, this is why it's disruptive. This is like, this is n like dolphin behavior because one of the things that I don't think that captains really understand is that like, you may think that this is normal dolphin behavior, but you but it's not because you're not like a non-invasive bow. Like scientists have figured out how to like study the dolphins without having that impact, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, you think about dolphins with chuffing. So, you know, they do those sharp exhalations from their blowhole. We know that's a problem. You know, mm -hmm. that's not a normal, like they just don't go along. That means something's wrong with the dolphin. It's some sort of disturbance behavior. And that means that doesn't register at all with the captains because they, you know, they have no idea what chuffing means. So it's sort of that recognizing, um, yeah, the issues and, and the same. It's it's crazy to see all these different places because, like I said, when I was in New Hampshire, I worked on whale watching boats. And, and I mean, you know, sometimes we would be on top of a mother and calf and mm -hmm. circled by six different boats. And it was so frustrating, you know, to be on these boats and to be 
a scientist and someone who's trying to educate. And then I'd even have passengers, which is, you know, kind of leading to the next point of what we found with them is like, I'd have passengers say, are we not, you know, affecting the dolphin or the, the whales by doing this? Like, you know, is this not harmful? We're basically on top of the whales and trying to explain to someone you know, basically yes, but not being able to say yes. You know, mm-hmm. it's just interesting to see like how captains are so, you know, I don't even know what their focus is in that, um, you know, passengers are the ones saying, hey, isn't something wrong here? You know, I feel like this isn't the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I it, totally, yeah, that's, I mean, people like they can see, you don't have to be a scientist to know when, when an animal is being disturbed. Obviously, like, you're going to know that more if you have that scientific training, but totally like people don't realize like what sort of behaviors are good and bad. And now that you're saying this, like, because this last summer I spent my time around killer whales mostly. And like, I honestly, like I was learning about killer whales. This was my first time around them, but I don't know like all the behaviors that would be considered like bad, you know, like, cause a lot of times, like I know a boat that my coworker was on, um, earlier this summer, there was a humpback. It breached like, 40 times and they were like this is so cool he goes back later and he looks at the photos that he took of this animal and it's been entangled yep so yeah it's important to know these behaviors and like you bring that up just orchestrates to me why because even I don't know all the behaviors because it's something that you know we learned in the science field like in our internship so that's yeah that's super important yeah and how you know as exactly as you said like you could bring me out to orcas and i'd have no idea what a normal behavior was and i'm even a scientist so it's like how do we expect captains who have no scientific background or a very limited one to know any of this stuff you know which is why we've got to you know step in here um and and you know help some education happen or else you know Absolutely. it's kind of hard to expect that from them so yeah Um, I did quickly want to interject with defining ecotourism because I had a conversation with my roommate before this and she's like, what is ecotourism? I'm like, thanks for asking me because I forget that people don't know what that means sometimes. Um, I personally would say that ecotourism is like, it can, it can be anything from like a boat tour, like a guided hike, a safari, anything where um, somebody is taking you out and it's kind of like a for-profit situation to go see the environment, whether that be educational or not. Do you agree with that definition? Um, yeah, so basically, do you want the like official oh. definition? Oh, yes, I do, yes. Society, yes, okay. <laughs> um, and good point, yeah, sometimes you, you just throw these words out and you forget that um, they're, you know, an exact definition sometimes hard to come up with. So um, it's defined as responsible travel to natural areas that conserves the environment, sustains the well-being of the local people, and involves interpretation and education. Holy cow. So the fact of you, you making that definition to me is like, that is contradictory of so many places that I know that claim ecotourism. Isn't it a bummer? It is a bummer. Because I, because I just told Emily too, I was like, I don't know if, if it has to be educational or not technically it's like you know it could be anything but like what you were saying it definitely is and who made that definition the international ecotourism society oh wow Um, it's definitely like debated so when you know obviously studying ecotourism i went through so many papers and everyone's throwing out different definitions and whatever and it's you know kind of evolved and changed over time it's it's new right yeah when was we were little ecotourism wasn't a big thing it wasn't probably a term that even was around. So that definition is from 2015. 
Um, so that's when they kind of like hammer that in and it hasn't changed for them since, but there are different ones. But I mean, to me also sustaining the well-being of the local people, like if you think of those ecotourism, you know, in, in kind of the, you know, second world countries or in different areas like that, like I, I don't know if the local people are taken into account at all, you know, when other people come in, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, when I was in Tanzania, I did the wildlife management and studies program. A big part of that was ecotourism. And that's what drew me to that, um, program. Cause it had a huge focus on human wildlife conflict, human wildlife relationships. And when we were doing some of our surveys, we did a bunch of research, like a bunch of different kinds of research. That was an incredible program to anyone listening. Who's thinking about <laughs> studying, look up school for field studies. Cause they taught us how to do interviews, behavioral studies, biological studies, the whole thing. Um, yeah. And we did the whole thing of like, make the question and like do the whole thing too. Obviously it was a much shorter study, but anywho, going back to it, there was one day I remember, like, I'll never forget. I was like talking to this woman and there was a translator there, of course, because I didn't speak fluent Swahili and, you know, we were talking about policy and she was saying that she felt that the animals were taken better care of than the people. And, like, also there's a lot of big entities in there. Like, going on a safari is expensive. One of my, um, one of the staff members there told me that the average cost of a safari, and I believe it's for a family for four days, is, like, 10 grand. Like, $10,000. And that's a lot of money in Tanzania. Like, that goes a long way. And um, it doesn't. It, like it gets back into the community, but there are still bigger entities that are taking most of that, which is so wrong. Yeah, right. And it's like literally, you know, we're using these people's resources and their land and their everything and then not having it be like, how can we do this with you? Or how can we, you know, exactly like put it directly back into the community? It's just using and taking and it just, yeah, it's it's not I don't think you're ever like, oh, ecotourism. Yes. Taking care of the local people, you know, yeah, it's no. not some not at all and here's the thing though about like places where they where americans or europeans or whoever with money decides to come in and make ecotourism you need to be aware of the culture you need to be aware of what the people need but also they are such an asset and such a huge part of that that you're missing out by not having them because they have so much to contribute they're going to know the land better but also it's their community not yours so like you need to establish that first yeah so it's it's kind of crazy, but yeah, I think that that's, that's a really important thing to add that I didn't even think of. Like it definitely needs to support the community as well, which is important for sure. Um, cool. So I think I'll move on to the next question. So this podcast focuses on the Southern resident killer whales. Um, why is it important that even though it's a different population in a different area that we explore issues in other areas or like talk about what you're doing in Florida? Okay, so um, I feel like we've already established this, but yes. just in case I have no orca background whatsoever. Yes. So <laughs> most of my knowledge on the Southern residents have come from you specifically. So <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, anything I say that's wrong, I really apologize. But uh, basically, I think it's a great question. something that I've learned through my own literature review because um, there's not a lot of compliance studies that have been done on dolphins specifically in the U.S., so if I'm trying to like compare my study or pull from other research, I've had to go further out. So I've looked at either dolphin populations in, you know, Australia or Panama or the UK. Um, and then I've also had to look at different animals. And so, you know, humpback whales, like we said, are a really big, you know, focus of whale watching and stuff like that. So even in my own research, you know, kind of realizing that you have to pull from different regions and different animals. But as far as, you know, specifically with 
everything. It's just like, it's all connected, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it might be different and it might be a different species or the exact details of the issue, you know, for a certain population might not be the same, but if you take a step back, it's the same like core problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, like we were talking about with, you know, you guys, right. You have better in in the San Juans, Mm -hmm. you guys, you're not there anymore, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they have much better, um, you know, much higher compliance levels for ecotourism, right? Mm-hmm. Based on what you've said and, and kind of different stuff. And they have stricter laws, like exactly 50 yards. It's kind of crazy. Um, so I honestly think, you know, in this case, looking at that population is something that could help the Florida population. You know, why are people willing to have better, um, you know, stricter guidelines? Why are people more willing to follow those guidelines in that population? You know, but then on a reverse level, um, you know, what about education? So I know that you, you know, we're on the boat. So are they educating as much as the Florida people are, you know, or in different areas, um, you know, kind of having that, are we operating at the best level possible? So, you know, even though compliance might be, you know, good up there, then maybe in another area such as education, you know, looking at what other places do right. could, could increase it. So, and I mean, you also mentioned um, having like a certification, right? Yeah. You said, like that idea. So what's fascinating with that is we in this area tried that. So like in Florida, yeah. So there was a smart program and it stood for, you know, something about smart operating and everything. And it failed miserably. Oh, it didn't increase compliance levels. It, It had this like certification. You were marked as a smart tour and it was supposed to draw people to you because you were supposed to be, you know, a higher compliance tour operator basically. But when I was at my conference in the fall in December, I met a woman from New Zealand and apparently they have the same program, but it works flawlessly. Like they have, it's like they have super high compliance levels. All of their operators participate. Their education levels are high. And so it's fascinating. And I uh, haven't had the chance to talk to her yet, but we're going to be zooming, I guess, soon. Um, But to see why ours failed and why hers succeeded. So, you know, totally different whales versus dolphins and New Zealand versus America, but Mm -hmm. sort of a direct look at two different programs that on the surface seem similar, but somehow, you know, they, they, one failed and one succeeded. So, uh, yeah, that would be, yeah, that's a, it, you know, for me initially, based on the, the knowledge that you just gave me, I'm going to go ahead and say that that's culture, like that that's probably the distinguishing factor. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a bummer. I would like to think it's something that we could change in our program, but it'll be interesting if it is something like that. And then how do you, you know, there's not really a way to change the culture of America, unfortunately. I disagree. I think that there is. Like, we make up the rules. Culture changes all the time. Like, culture in the 80s, like, the 1980s and the 1880s and so on is different than it is now. If we're going, if we're going long term. True, true, true. Yeah. Okay, exactly. Well, actually, so that's something I feel like with this question of like, you know, how can we look at other things? And then the idea of culture tying in. So I feel like a really big thing that we don't talk about is social science. And it's something that I just have kind of had this new passion for since it's been such a part of my project. But I think that, you know, listening to a lot of people, um, like, okay, so the dam issue, right? Mm -hmm. For the orcas, like that's a biological problem, right? It's preventing, you know, it's preventing the fish and and Mm -hmm. food shortages and that kind of thing, right? It's having a biological impact but it's a human problem. Yes. You know, like it's, it's not, it wasn't natural. It's nothing created that that was humans. Yes. And so this idea of like, in the same way with changing cultures, like until we start to embrace the idea of social science and we stop looking down on other scientists, you know, who are, oh, we're biologists. 
right? Yes. And you're, thank you. Yes. Everybody, she is silently clapping for yes, me. Yes, <laughs> I am. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just so tired and I had that experience. So my original project was going to be super biologically focused, genetics, contaminants, biopsy darting, all of that kind of stuff. And then I ended up with a project that was looking at human-dolphin interaction. And I... I got ragged on by other grad students. Like I got told that I wasn't doing real science and that upset me so much because, you know, we talk about this and I've heard this so many times that we call it marine mammal management, right? Mm-hmm. We're not managing the mammals. Mm-hmm. Like we're not managing the animals. We're managing the people. You know, you can go tell a dolphin all you want to, to not come over here because there are boats. They yeah. don't get that. That's not something we can tell them, but you can turn to a captain and say, hey, bud, you know, don't approach dolphins that closely. And although they might not do it, they understand it, you know? And it's this idea of like, until we look at people and until we are willing to use different, you know, branches of science to come at an issue. So like the dams, you know, you've talked about the, you know, economic side of it. Like we need to bring other people, economists and social scientists and everything, because, you know, you've said up there, the changing culture, the being willing to alter the environment and being willing just to do something different by knocking down the dams than we've done. And it's like, until we understand, you know, why humans are against that, what maybe they'd be willing to compromise with, which I know you've talked about on the podcast and stuff like that. Like it's such an essential part of all of this Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, it's really, it is, it's humans who we're managing. And so until I just feel like we stop having that negative view of lesser social science or whatever, you know, we're not going to be as successful at solving these problems. Because like we said, it's a holistic view, right? Yes. You... Literally, like, you get what this entire project is about. Like, you get it. And I feel the same way. And there's so many different things that we've addressed in this podcast, like issues of, like, economics and getting into this field, as well as women and being in this field and so many different things. And that is something that has yet to come up. Well, I touched on it a little bit in Joe Gatos's interview. Um, he was saying that we need the social scientists. But, like, I totally agree. And as somebody that has an environmental studies major and a psychology major, I can tell you that psychology is harder than environmental studies because it's harder to quantify. Exactly. Yeah. But a lot of people, so there's one professor who has always been like, um, social science isn't real science because you can't replicate it. Like you can't replicate your results. And I was like, I don't care. Like I, Mm. now that I've done the social science, like I know what my captains think. I know the way to tackle the problem with them. I know what the issue is for my passengers. Like I can go to this eco-tour problem, you know, much more educated and with a better game plan than I could have if I had never done my fake science. Yeah. And so it's so important. It is. And also like most people don't speak scientist and nobody wants to be talked down to. Nobody likes elitism. And so, like, we need to know how to communicate our ideas, our thoughts, our findings with the public. And if you come in here and you're like, hi, I have nine degrees and I am the king of killer whales, like, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to care. And, like, you know, I had a conversation with Cy and Snow of PNW Protectors and um, Snow brought this up and this was off of, you know, uh, recording. But she was like, so, you know, at the end of the day, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but she was like, you know, if you, if you have all these degrees and like you were the most passionate about the killer whales and you have no friends and the whales are dead, what was the point? Did you win? Does anyone win? Oh my gosh. Incredible. Yes. Well, cause that's what I always say is like, I'm, I'm a huge education person. Like, you know that I love it. I love talking to the public. And I've always said, we can sit here as scientists with all of our knowledge, mm-hmm. but unless we actually tell the public, like it means nothing. Literally. Exactly. 
it means nothing. So you can sit here and be the smartest person in the world, but if you are unable to exactly communicate it in a way that people understand, because we like, I mean, who's going to read a scientific paper? I'm going to be honest. Sometimes I read scientific papers and I'm like, all right, I'm going to have to take that paragraph again because, you know, so full of jargon and it's, it's things that just completely, you know, overwhelm people and it intimidates them. And so, you know, we are pushing out this knowledge right now in the form of scientific papers that only other scientists read. And until we do things like podcasts like this, that mm-hmm. take it to the level of the everyday person who, you know, doesn't go look up scientific papers yeah. is what a person does. Because who has time? And also who has a subscription to the journal anyways? And then also you're not going to enjoy reading something if you have to look up every other word as well. Like it needs to be accessible. But that was that was the goal of this because I thought of a, a lot of different platforms. And I was like, podcasts are easy because realistically, Americans live on the go. This is something that you can listen to in your car. This is something that's free. Like it's it fits into somebody's lifestyle. And the information is there if they want it. It's not like a struggle to find it, you know? Yeah. And it's enjoyable. Like who doesn't want to listen to a conversation or like people joking around? Like I would much rather listen to an hour long podcast than go be lectured to by somebody online or some professor or read some crazy textbook or, you know, something like that. It's just all of these forms, like the documentaries and things like that, that just bring it to the public. It's so essential because nobody knows unless we actually open our mouths in a way that they understand, you know, and are willing to, to not consider exactly the elite scientists like I'm no better than anyone else because yeah. I'm a quote scientist like mm-hmm. that means nothing you know yeah. and, and to willing to you know come off our pedestal our imagined pedestals and and try to you know share this information with people who care you know yeah. like the world a lot of people want to know this stuff mm-hmm. and you know when you like see a tiny nugget child like you start telling them about marine biology and they get this light in their eyes yes. you know you go on the whale watches and you see this family that was, you know, kind of grumpy and not really here for it and a little seasick. And then you see the whales and then you tell them about how big they are and how much they eat, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just an entirely different family walks off the boat and you're like education and being willing to to talk about it and to not just, you know, pass out scientific papers on the boat. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it makes such a difference and it's so cool to see. Yeah, it's a conversation and it's personal. But yeah, I totally agree with you. Like those connections that you make on the boat, like those are my favorite, like the one-on-one conversations, not like me on the microphone, but like it really does make a difference. And I feel like it makes science more personable too, because you're like, hey, look, like I get that there's a lot of things that we could know about a whale because like, what is this like weird thing breathing away from me that's like 40 feet long? I don't understand, but like, you, we can make that connection, you know, and be like, it's like, here are the similarities. Here's why you should care. And it's not hard to get people to care about a whale once they see one. Um, I mean, and you know, there are people that, um, go on whale watch boats and they come off and they're, they're still not happy. And, and those people, I have no hope for them. I try to have hope for everyone. That will never be happy. Literally. Yeah. You know. We can choose joy. Let's just, for everybody, if you're one of those people, let's start choosing joy. Cause I promise it's more fun. <laughs> yes. And we'll, and we're here to, to share the joy with you. So yes, let's, let's choose joy. Yes. Um, Awesome. So I'll get back on track with our questions. But um, why is it important, especially those in the ecotourism industry, to follow the NOAA viewing guidelines? 
Okay, so obviously it's super important and a bummer that a lot of them don't, but Mm -hmm. I would say the most important thing, um, the biggest reason for them to follow the guidelines is because ecotourism, if done correctly, can be positive, right? Mm -hmm. It can be a positive force. And, you know, I think that um, just the idea of right now with people not complying to things, people violating the guidelines, it's becoming negative, right? It's having a negative impact. Mm. And I think that probably, you know, you may think that, okay, I've seen eco-tour after eco-tour run over dolphins, get too close to dolphins, like that I might be someone that doesn't like ecotourism, doesn't approve of ecotourism. And like, that's the furthest thing from the truth, because mm. I know it's potential for positivity and positive impacts on people and conservation and everything. So I think the important thing is that, you know, you've talked about this, we can't, we can't have no impact on the environment, right? Yep. It's just, it's a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not going to happen for us. So I think that when we do interact with the environment, it needs to be obviously about, you know, minimizing negative impacts and increasing positive impacts. And I think that that's a huge thing with ecotourism, because if we can have ecotours that follow the guidelines, then all of a sudden you have a place for people to see things and, you know, look at animals and learn about animals that they never would have been able to. You have a platform for education. So Mm -hmm. also used properly, you know, you can teach people things. You can get them to care about conservation. Like we were saying, exactly. If if someone's looking at an animal, you know, they're, they're willing, they're, they went on the eco tour for a reason, Yeah. you know, on a learn, they want to see the animal. And so if we, do the proper things and use ecotourism for the potential that it has, it far outweighs the negatives. But until we get these ecotour captains to start following these guidelines, it's going to become too, you know, too negative and and too impactful. And it's going to lose its positive, you know, basically charge that it has the potential to have. Yeah. And also like, you know, it, it definitely, you're right. It totally has the potential to be something great, but it's like, you're you ultimately no matter what you're gonna have an impact you choose if it's negative or it's positive but like there you're right there's such potential here in like inspiring people and like also on these eco tours and boats they could talk about like citizen science and like you know connect people to the field in that way and there's so many different ways that the field can help benefit but it's like that that passion has to be there and if the captains and the boat companies aren't passionate about it like they're like there's no way. Also, if you think about it from a business perspective alone, endangering the population of animals that you're trying to show people is bad business practices. It really is on a very basic level, right? Yep. So, uh, and I mean, honestly, on another business level, so part of my project was looking at people's willingness to pay mm-hmm. for a responsible eco-tour. And it was like 67% of the passengers were willing to pay like at least 30% more for a responsible eco-tour. So on a very business level, like if, if captains don't care about the dolphins at all, it's just economically beneficial to be, you know, a compliant eco-tour. So there's so many different ways, you know, that we can really sort of, and that's the thing is by knowing that, you know, if you didn't know that about the passengers, you can't take that to the captains. So, you know, looking at passengers, analyzing and assessing passengers, now we have, hey, look, money signs, you know, if you're compliant, is such a motivator for people. We know that. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that this, again, highlights the importance of the social science element, because if we didn't have that key piece of the puzzle, we wouldn't know how to solve it. We have to look at the whole thing. We need everybody. That's kind of the point of this podcast is like, There's so many perspectives around the Southern residents, so many different people working. And it's like, if we all come together, utilize each other's skills, like utilize the information that everybody has and take into account all of the things that are impacted, like we can get some (laughs) fun. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> we really could. Yeah. yeah. Instead of the thing that we do, which is this is my research and my science and I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to look at it and whatever else, you know, and oh, those are the social scientists. So we can't hang out with them or economists have no say in this. This is biology. Like it's not helping anybody. Mm-mm. No, it's really not. Um, but another thing that I thought of too is, um, like another benefit to them following the guidelines is then wreck boats see them following the guidelines. That was also one of my points. Yes. So you set a precedent, right? If you're an eco boat and you have a huge, you know, Bob's eco tours, come see the dolphins and you're on top of a dolphin and I'm a wreck boater, I'm going to be like, all right, so that person has some kind of authority because they're quote unquote an eco tour, you know? And so obviously that's okay for me to do too. So it's a hundred percent, you know, you're the example for other people, other wreck boaters. And if, you know, we can't even have our eco tours following the guidelines and they're the ones that interact with the dolphins or whales the most, right? You know, you maybe a wreck boater passes by for five minutes or some of my dolphin eco tour boats went out 10 times a day. So, you know, they don't, you know, don't follow the guidelines time and time and time again. It, it has the potential for a higher level of impact than if a wreck boater doesn't follow the guidelines the one time it passes by. Yep, that's true. And this is why we got to look at the whole thing. And we got to figure out where to meet the captains where they're at. And I'm glad that you're having that conversation with someone from New Zealand to figure out what made that successful because that's really important too. And I had a conversation with Lori Marino and another point that she made was like, we need to get the scientists on board with like advocacy and like whether that be in the form of like political advocacy or like kind of what you're doing, which is educational advocacy. Yeah, for sure. There's gotta, there's just gotta be more connections and like more working together because like obviously you know, it's not working right now. So it's not, it definitely is not. So how do you think we can improve this? Okay. So that's actually funny that you say that because my biggest thing is, and you've talked about this before and you're just kind of talking about now is the captains have to be brought on board. Like Mm -hmm. they have to be brought into the conversation because right now, I mean, the thing is, you know, you said if they don't care, my captains were the cutest. Mm-hmm. They were pumped. Like they love the dolphins. They would tell me all of these stories about them. And as soon as they learned, you know, that I was a researcher, they would start asking me questions. Like they wanted to learn. They wanted to have a positive impact and they just didn't know how to actually do it. You know, they didn't know how to put those intentions into action. And so, you know, I love education, like I said, but unfortunately it's not enough usually. Mm-hmm. So you educate someone, they think, wow, cool. They leave and they don't actually change their behavior. So like I mentioned that conference in December, I went to, I went to a whole workshop about that. So it was basically like education isn't enough. How do we actually change people's behavior? And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we talked about um, that I think fits here perfectly is the fact that all stakeholders, you know, need to be brought into the conversation. And so everybody, you know, involved in the problem and they need to be given a sense of ownership, which I think is one of the biggest things. So with ecotourism, there are places that have a code of conduct that was decided on and designed by the captains themselves. There's no governmental like influence whatsoever. And with those, there's a higher level of compliance because they design them themselves. So why would you break you know, your own rules that you created? Right they're like these tight knit communities where they hold each other accountable, you know, and a lot of the, in that study, there were a couple, um, you know, responses about like what helps you to comply, like what's your driver for compliance. And one of them was like public shame from the other eco tours because they're, you know, a community and, and they hold each other accountable because they feel ownership over this thing that they've created. So it's not someone telling them to do it. 
it's them deciding, you know, themselves. Mm -hmm. So like with the captains um, in Naples, that's, that's my biggest thing. That's what I want to do more than anything else. It's not, you know, everyone says educational workshop, let's do an outreach workshop. Mm -hmm. And if I'm an adult and you say, Hey, let me come lecture to you for an hour. Am I going to go? No, you know, I'm not going to. So I'm an adult captain and I don't want to go be talked to about all the things I'm doing wrong. However, if you talk to these enthusiastic captains who, you know, they had suggestions for the ways they wanted the rules to change, the guidelines. Um, not all of them <laughs> were definitely going to be something we could do, but maybe some of them could be. Like you say, where can we compromise to keep the dolphins safe, but also just sort of create this camaraderie with the captains so that they're more likely to comply? So I think inviting captains in, specifically in my area, just because of the interest they've shown and just saying, hey, like, come talk to us. Like, local managers, you know, maybe someone like me and just come say, hey, what are your suggestions? What would you like to see changed about the guidelines? Would you have any interest in creating your own code of conduct? Like, let us help you with that. How about education? Like, you know, if we give you an education booklet or how about we design it specifically, you know, what would you want to know about dolphins? What do you and so all of a sudden it's not Noah saying you should do this it's not someone else saying here's an education booklet it's these captains saying this is how I am willing to you know conduct myself and this is the education that I design like who Mm -hmm. doesn't want to tell other people about you know their own projects and stuff like that and I think that it just would open the door for us to solve those issues that I was talking about with the not understanding the biological implications of you know, violating the guidelines. So instead of just saying, come here and we're going to talk at you saying, let's start this conversation and then use that open door, use that, you know, beginning to kind of work with the captains to say, oh, hey, you know, guys, when you approach dolphins, it does disrupt their normal behavior. This is why it's a bad thing, you know? And so I just think if we could do that and and with the Naples captains specifically, it's a very small group right now. So like Mm -hmm. I said, it's like eight tours, you know, 16 captains at most, a couple of them had the same captain. So if you can go ahead and and get compliance to the level and education to the level that it needs to be at, and as ecotourism continues to grow, which I have no doubt that it will, like I said, you know, a precedent will be set and hopefully it'll just be known, you know, as more companies come in, hey, you know, this is what we do. Mm -hmm. And so I think right now, just as more people come in, you know, people, no one's complying, so no one's going to comply. So it's kind of the importance of seeing this opportunity to stop it, you know, nip it in the bud right now and kind of improve our compliance levels before it gets too big. Yeah, I think that that's that's a really good point that you bring up. And also, from what I know about the San Juans, that's why that's how they're successful as well. Because it was a community-based initiative. I, I'm not, I can't remember all the details, but Monica Shields writes about it in her book, Endangered Orca. But like, it, the, the whole reason why it worked so well is because there was such a good relationship between the scientists and the boating community. And it's, it is community enforcement. It's like that shame of like, well, you don't want to be like the, the whale watch boat that's being bad, you know? You know all the other captains, like you yeah. know the com- like the whole community. It's a whale watch community, basically. Like yeah. in New Hampshire, you know everyone's talking to the other captains. They all know them. They go out for drinks with them. You know they've known them since they were little. Stuff like that, where it's like, of course you can't have like public shame. Apparently, is still a driving factor. So you know it is, and it's funny because like the I I do a lot of books on uh, reading books on like leadership and and be- human behavior and things like that because I understand the importance of that. Because how am I going to communicate my goal if I don't know how to communicate with all types of people and I found that shame and blame are are not necessarily healthy tools and I guess in this sense they do work but like 
I think we need to lift each other up and, and be like, hey, you can do this, you know? But like, it is funny that they do, like it still is effective. I prefer not to use shame and blame. I prefer to use compassion, but we're, we're making our way. We're getting there. The thing is, you know, it's not the way that they specifically, you know, enforce it. Like in the, you know, in the place I'm talking about where they have, um, you know, like the main factor is the community. It's yeah. like, we all know this is what our livelihood relies on. And this is something that we choose to do as a group. And like, we, you know, if we're all doing this, we can do this. And that's a problem, you know, with ecotourism, I think, is if one or two people aren't following the rules, then all of a sudden, you know, it's the other people who are following the rules are losing out on closer views and, and that kind of thing. So it really needs to be at least a majority of, you know, getting everybody on board with following it. But that's really cool. Cause exactly, so look, that is an answer for why, yeah. you know, it's there is it's, it's community based. It's so community. I'm, I'm interested to see what you find out about how it worked in New Zealand. If that was like the, the factor as well. We are just going to interrupt this episode really briefly with a quick message from our sponsors. Um, and then we'll get right back to it before switching gears. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash breachingextinction. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio, news, comedy and more leading audio publishers broadcasters and entertainers again go to audibletrial.com slash breaching extinction so we're gonna switch gears here a little bit because i love for this podcast to be inclusive but like like we said we're looking at the holistic picture so my question for you is a lot of people see a duality between science and religion you have both a strong faith in Christianity and your work as a scientist. Do you feel that these should be seen as opposing forces? Okay. <laughs> so I'm super excited to talk about this. And I want to say thank you for letting me do this. Yes. Um, and for anyone listening who just groaned or rolled your eyes, uh, which I understand, uh, just give me a chance. Open mind, I think. Um, yeah. And, you know, I just talked about science for a really long time. So I'm one of you. So don't worry. Yes. Um, don't worry. But, but also it's important to see how realistically people live we can't exclude parts of the picture just because we don't like it we shouldn't exactly I think yeah. sometimes we try but we definitely shouldn't so yeah, yeah to answer your question 100% no mm -hmm. um so I don't feel that these should be seen as opposing forces um and it, it kind of breaks my heart when they are when that sort of dichotomy is forced so um you know as you said I'm a Christian I have been my whole life um, and I've also had science part of my whole life so to me it's never been mutually exclusive, but I can definitely understand, obviously, growing up and talking to other people how, you know, it can become that way for, for some people. So I guess, um, you know, you're thinking, how? How are they not opposing forces for people who that seems very black and white to? And so the answer for me is that I believe that God created all things, and I believe that includes science. So um, science to me is just a way of like knowing and exploring God's creation. And so I think that the more we study and learn about the world, the more in awe of it we are. Um, and in turn, like in the more in awe of God we are, and this just leads, you know, in my opinion, to praise for this beautiful creation. Like, you know, the more we learn, the more we're like, wow, this world is incredible. Whether you think it's, you know, from God or whatever, like the more you learn about the world and see, you know, whales and giant mountain ranges and the Grand Canyon and all these beautiful things, it truly is awe-inspiring. And so, um, you know, I just think that science improves our understanding of the world um, and something that just like leads us to worship in that respect. But like, I don't think 
like they're opposing because I think God designed one to lead to the other. Mm-hmm. So basically like the more I learn about science, the stronger my faith gets. Uh, so like, I mean, things like, you know, when you read about how the earth is like perfectly placed in the solar system, right? Mm-hmm. Like too close, like, you know, a couple little bit too close to the sun, a couple little bit further away from the sun and we'd be in so much trouble, but we're not, you know, we're like perfectly placed mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, like I know some people are like, wow, it's just really convenient that that happened. And, and to me almost, I feel like the odds are so small that mm-hmm. it's like God is almost the more likely culprit than this, you know, very teeny tiny chance of this like beautifully, perfectly placed earth for life to be yeah that's that's a good point I mean I like personally I I grew up Christian or I grew up Catholic and I was in a Christian um basically a Christian cult in high school that's a whole nother story I dropped Um, that I feel like (laughs) yeah um but like so I like I definitely I like I can see where you're coming from um as far as that but like I also have since gone away from that. And I now just, like, consider myself kind of a spiritual person. But, like, you know, that's, I mean, that's a fair thing of, like, how did this come to be? And the one thing about science is we don't necessarily, at least to my knowledge, have a way of, like, studying. Like, obviously the Big Bang is whatever. But, like, who's to say that that God wasn't behind the Big Bang, which is, like, what you're saying? Like, we don't have the science to show that. So we can't, obviously... It isn't science because we can't disprove it, but just because it's not science doesn't mean it's not true. Like, I really don't think that we should discount potential theories because that we don't have the capacity to understand them yet. I think it's still important to talk about them because who knows, maybe 50 years down the line, we will have some sort of tool to study that. Like, who knows? Like, but I just... think we know now, you know, that we didn't know before. And I mean, I don't... I personally probably don't think that we'll ever have a way of, like, specifically quantifying God, you know? But yeah. it's interesting, like, different different ways of looking at exactly like you have no idea what we'll know in the future kind of thing exactly and that's why I don't think it's fair to completely discount anything unless we've like actually done a study and can can definitively discount it like I and I think it's wrong to shut people down and get on your high horse of like well it can't be because like my little human brain can't understand it okay well like hundreds of years ago your little human brain couldn't understand what we're talking about right now so like who who the heck knows like why like don't get mad because somebody's got an idea like yeah exactly yeah for sure awesome um so do you ever find I mean you kind of already like answered this a little bit um do you find that your faith in in science and religion contradict one another no I don't and I think um you know kind of thinking about this uh I'm obviously not going to get into everything nobody wants me to do that but I kind of thought you know sitting here that like a maybe a few let me give you just like a few examples. That I feel like people, yeah. when they start to have like the, you know, religion versus science conversation, I think there's a lot of stuff um, that people assume about Christians. And I don't, I think that, you know, that's kind of stuff from the past or maybe people just making assumptions. Um, but so just bear with me. So like the big bang, you mm-hmm. mentioned that, right? That's the mm-hmm. exact thing that you were saying. So like, I do believe in the big bang. So if you're someone that's like Christians don't believe in the big bang, like, hi, I'm here. I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe that it just randomly started. And then the world and universe perfectly expanded, you know, into this beautiful, perfectly placed planet that we have today. Like, I don't think that randomly happened. Like, I think that the big bang is just scientists way of putting a label on the moment that God created the universe. So I think that, like you said, just the big bang was God. So, Mm -hmm. and I just think that's us, you know, putting a label on it and trying to understand it. And then 
I think a lot of people come at like creation, you know, God created the earth in six days, it says in the Bible. Um, and I definitely believe that. Um, but I also believe that the earth is over 4 billion years old. And that is because I don't believe that God's days are 24 hours. Um, and I think that's something that when I was actually in sixth grade, I had a fellow student and she talked to my science teacher and she was like, dinosaurs aren't real because God created the earth in six days. And my science teacher just flat looked at her and she was like, since when are God's days 24 hours? And it's just the idea of like, you know, our construct of time and everything is something that we have and like limiting God to that, um, you know, is just silly. And there's actually the only Bible verse I'll hit you with is second Peter three, eight. And it says that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So like, it's just this idea of like, just because our days are 24 hours long, like that's not the same limit that is put on God. Um, and then I think the biggest one, this will be my last one is evolution. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people that's important. Yeah. one. So I think a lot of people think that, um, you know, Christians don't believe in evolution. And again, that's not true. So I'm a Christian and I also believe in evolution. Um, I believe that animals change and evolve over time, but I believe that it's God ordained so that like evolution happens as a result of God's design. It's not separate from God. It's not this random thing happening. I think that it's part of, you know, how God designed and created the world. So it's this whole, it really can coexist. And I think that, um, you know, I've even had conversations. I love being in this position because Mm -hmm. when I talk to Christians, I get to talk all about science, you know, and talk to them about how, yes, like we can prove evolution. You know, it's a Mm -hmm. thing, it's science and we see it, Um, you know, and then talking to scientists and I can kind of come up them with this other is, you know, it doesn't have to be all this like either or black and white, like they can coexist together. And I just think that's something like you said, just, um, you know, important to, to be open to both sides and to hold that space, you know, for that conversation to happen, like we're having here. Um, and I think, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big conversation, right? We still have this, like kids in middle school or whatever are taught Mm -hmm. evolution. And then the Christians are like, no, we don't believe this. We can't believe this. We believe in creationism. And it's like, it's important to talk about it because it's still a big issue and it's something that, you know, it's, it's something that can coexist. And I think that we limit ourselves by trying to make them, you know, one thing or the other, and it divides us. So like, exactly like you said, as soon as you hear that I'm a Christian, you might all of a sudden be like, okay, you know, she thinks certain things and that makes her not as good of a scientist or, you know, any sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And I think that that's just, you know, why put limits on ourselves and and why divide us? You know, we already struggle as humans stay together. So like why divide ourselves even more? And I just think that, you know, it forces children raised in faith, you know, to either feel uncomfortable in science classes or feel they can't pursue a career in science or, you know, eventually abandon their faith because someone made fun of them for not believing evolution or they have this struggle of like, if I believe in evolution, I cannot be a Christian. And like, Mm -hmm. that's not true. You know, and then there's other things of like people who are raised straight in science, um, you know, they may think like, oh, well, I believe in science, therefore I cannot believe in God. So mm-hmm. they never, you know, are open to the possibility. They never have a conversation with someone like me to try to understand that maybe there is something else. Like you said, like it's there's no like definitively disproving. So why not be open, you know, to having a conversation about it and, and you know, something that's non-judgmental, which is 100 percent what you are so good at and just having like being willing to hear the other side, um, I think is so important for, for everybody. And like, that's how we grow, right? Like, don't we grow by hearing other people's ideas and things that are different than our own and opinions that are different than our own. And, you know, we're constantly as scientists trying to understand the world more, 
And if we cut off this whole portion of either a conversation or questions or, you know, a whole population of people's thoughts and we consider them a non-issue or something Mm -hmm. not to be thought of, then really, you know, how much of scientists are we being? We're not willing to expand our world that much. We're just only willing to expand it as much as, you know, our box or our thinking allows us to do so. So I think being willing to have things that you might think are awkward, like, as a Christian scientist, I love when people come to me who don't believe in Jesus and want to have a conversation with me. I mean, we had so many in Sarasota, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, I loved it because as a Christian, like I'm called to share my faith and mm-hmm. I love the opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm not here to look down on anyone. And I do want to say if that has been your experience with Christianity, anyone listening, like, that's not what it's about. Like all I'm here, like as Christians, we're just here to love others and to love God and tell you about a God that loves you. And like, if you've been condemned or looked down on it, anything like that, like, I just want to apologize because that's not like you, you didn't interact with a Christian or you, it just wasn't a Christian, you know, living the way that we're called to live. So I just, yeah, I just, I don't know, ask for open minds and and being willing to have that conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, you saying that, that you're, that's not a Christian being called the way that Christians are called to live. I think that as scientists, we're called to live to be curious. And if you close that door, you're not being, you're not living as you're called to be as a scientist. (laughs) Actually call yourself a scientist if you're not being willing to hear all ideas, you know, like when anyone discovers anything new, it's crazy and it's different and it it might not be something that they want to hear, but exactly. You're, you're just not really living out your true calling. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, one of the things in the the books that I've read about like people and, and wellness and like what do people want and what's important to people? Because ultimately, if we want people to care, we got to understand their values. We got to understand how they think. And one of the pinnacles that I see from a variety of psychologists and other people in different books is that spirituality is a core kind of innate part of being a human. And so for us to exclude that completely, that's going to turn a lot of people off to the scientific field and wanting to understand science but I, you know, and you're not the first person to say this. I, I've had conversations with Heather Green. She was on here. But outside of this, too, we've talked about how, you know, science and spirituality can eventually come together. And we have no idea where the world is going. Like, you know, people used to base everything off of spirituality. But when we look across countries, like all around the world, we can see that spirituality, no matter what form that it is, and spirituality meaning like, a sense of having a greater purpose or a sense of belonging with the planet or God or whoever, that that exists everywhere. That is a universal truth that is a, a that is innate, I would say, because, you know, even before people were able to transcend religion, they, they came up with that on their own, you know? So it's a, it's a fundamental part of being a human. And, and you're right, we're so limited when we stick to our box of like, this is what we do. But like, we need to hold space for like, hey, there are, you can be both. And like your, your faith can, can help you to be a scientist. Maybe you're asking different questions because of what you believe in, you know? Yeah, exactly. And they definitely, yeah, I just think that that thing is, it's like, we all, like you're saying, we all have this, like, you know, want to be part of something and we want to be, you know, just want to be better people or a lot of people do, you know, Mm -hmm. we just want to be. um, you know, we want to grow and mature and it's just by being, you know, willing to have an open mind to these things that might be, you know, on the surface, like silly or ridiculous or impossible. Like you said, like, it's, it's such a part of so many different cultures and places and peoples, um, that, yeah, we're doing ourselves a disservice to, to discount any of it really. 
Absolutely. And I think also, you know, a conversation that I, I've had with my cousin recently is, is we've talked about how like the news um, kind of and media will, will pit two things against each other. And that's such a common thing for us to look at things in black and white in a duality. The reality is that most things are gray and kind of the conclusion that we came to in our conversation, he was like, I watch the news and I think the world is a terrible place. I interact with one human and I realize that it's actually a good place. And I think you're right. Fundamentally, people want to be better. People want to do better. Ultimately, we want to live in a better world. Is there a perfect solution to that? No. But if we come together, if we work cooperatively, if we're open to new ideas, and then we also consider the entire picture, not just parts of it that we like and that fit into our box and that are easy for us to understand, we're going to have hard conversations. We're going to mess up. We're going to say things that are going to like tick people off. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's worth it for it to be better on the other side. Exactly. And the whole point is like when we come to these conversations, so about anything, exactly. Like it doesn't have to be religion and science. Think of any conversation that's hard, you know, and it's, it's just grace. Mm -hmm. I would just say, come, come to the conversation with grace. Like, don't, don't be quick to get mad or defensive or anything like that. Just come to a place of like, exactly. We're going to mess up, but at least we're trying. Right. And Mm -hmm. I feel like really looking at, you know, intention and trying to have that sort of you know, open mind and heart and be someone that other people can talk to about different struggles, you know, and are different things exactly like that are different than your own. And you're never going to grow if you just sit with your same ideas in your same little box. And I mean, that would be a bummer life. I feel like it totally would. It would be a bummer life because people are so exciting. And like, I think that on paper, like you and I would other people might be like, oh, they won't get along because you're definitely a bit more like, conservative than I am and like religiously like our backgrounds are different but we share that passion for whales like I'm excited to learn about your spirituality because that's a key part of who you are and like we we both love to dance like we both love karaoke (laughs) and I think so cool is I love that when you can be I mean I feel like I'm you know so blessed by this friendship because to have that idea of like we can disagree on some really key things Mm -hmm. you know like we can have different opinions on things and that's okay, you know, mm-hmm. and we can have a great friendship still and we can be willing to listen to each other and, you know, have ideas and, and share them. And even if we don't agree with them exactly, still be able to to say, I get that. And that's a part of you. And I love learning that about you, even if I don't feel the same way, you mm-hmm. know, and so it's just so cool to even see that. And, and I love that. And I think that's an important thing to remember that with any situation, like, exactly, if it doesn't look like maybe you'd love this person on paper, like give them a chance and be open. And yeah, you never know. Like you're definitely one of my favorite people, but like, but you same. Yes. But like, it's important though too. Cause like you miss out on opportunities, but like, also I think, you know, a key part of this is like fundamentally, like when it comes down to it, we want the world to be a better place. We want the decisions that we made to, to make, to be informed Um, maybe our thought processes on how we get there or whatever is different. Like our thoughts on spirituality or something are different, but like fundamentally we want the same thing and we just understand that we have different paths in life. And that's like the beautiful thing about it, you know? And that's okay. Yeah. I feel like it just stop. I think a lot of this world is, um, wow, we are going to be, we're getting deep. Um, (laughs) a lot of this world is, um, you have to agree with me because I'm right. And if you don't agree with me, then we can't, you know, coexist or we can't, you're wrong or, you know, whatever. It creates so much tension. And just the idea of 
everybody has different opinions and backgrounds and experiences and it all comes together to create the person that we are and just being you know willing to to get to know people and respect people no matter you know if they look different or if their views are different or anything like that's exactly it and and you do you miss out if you aren't willing to do that yeah you totally miss out if you sit in your same bubble and interact with your same people and think your same thoughts your whole life that's boring boring don't live a boring life everybody (laughs) yes don't um the last question I had about religion which you pretty much answered I'll ask it anyways just in case you have any like last thoughts but why do you think it's important that we hold space for religion in the realm of science like in other words why is it important that we remain open to scientists who also have a religious affiliation yeah I mean I think that's Oops, yeah, I did kind of step all over that, didn't I? <laughs> I mean, it's totally fine, yeah. We... Yeah, I mean, I think, though, it's just, I mean, yeah, it's exactly, you know, what we're saying is is it allows us to learn from each other. And, I mean, honestly, as a Christian scientist, you know, I hold space for people who don't have faith. And it's just, like, having that open mind to, to reciprocate in, in the same thing. So, um, yeah, I just think that it's just important to hold space for everybody and to have open hearts and open minds and I think that that will really make the world a better place in and of itself yeah I totally agree with you I think that's spot on um so usually at the end of the episode we always ask what can we learn from the southern resident killer whales but you've never met them and you don't know that much about them so what can we learn from the Naples and or Sarasota bottlenose dolphin okay I would say I was thinking about this and um because I know that you always, you always say that. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, I feel like I gotta, I gotta have a good answer for that. So, um, I think that the, the dolphins in Naples are a bit different than some people might think of dolphins. Um, and so much as they don't live in pods. So, you know, that you can't say the pods words down there. It's, it's not good. Um, so they live in a thing that we kind of call a fission fusion society where their groups are ever changing. They're constantly hanging out with different people. Um, and so I just think that I love this about them and the fact that sometimes, you know, you can come on a mom and her new calf and then it's a daughter from like two calves ago and it's just hanging out with her sister and her mom, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, you know, my favorite, uh, social structure is the male pair alliance, which yes. I call bro buds. <laughs> so these are two males. Um, and basically they just are best friends for life. It, to me, it's the cutest thing in the world. And they stay together. They go everywhere together. They help each other hunt, protect each other from sharks, um, you know, help each other mate. And I think that you've talked about this before, but the relationships that these animals have are just so central to their culture. And like, you know, you guys, the Southern residents have pods. Yes, mm-hmm. correct. Um, and you know, we in the Naples population, our dolphins don't, but there's still so much of a family and like a culture and family structure. And I think that, you know, the lesson is that, you know, relationships are so important and like just to, you know, reach out to your people. And I think this is something that we're learning so much right now, right? Like Mm -hmm. in quarantine, how important relationships are. And Mm -hmm. just to remember, you know, even in a silly way, like the, the daughter comes back and visits the mom every once in a while, you know, the importance of like check in on your family and, mm-hmm. you know, find a buddy, find a bro bud and mm-hmm. go through life with them. And it, it, you know, it just makes things easier and it makes the journey more fun. So I just feel like seeing them and how important and central relationships are for them and how much I feel like we've been learning that is we're all missing our people, you know, and just that reminder when this ends, you know, don't forget your people. Yeah. And, Definitely not. Yeah, I realize how how social we are within this pandemic. And hopefully by the time this episode comes out, the pandemic will be over. Um, I have my doubts, though. Um, 
why <laughs> no, i don't know like yep um but yeah that's like i feel like that's pretty spot on with them and uh, you know one of the things that i noticed too when you were talking about the chuffing is um th- i feel like the bottlenose compared to other marine mammals that i've been with they're very expressive of their emotions i was gonna say that yes they're like they're here for it they're not gonna let you be confused about how they're feeling versus yeah humpback just kind of chills but as soon as adults angry yeah, or tail whacking, that's something that they like to do and make a big splash. And sometimes that's hunting, but sometimes that appears to be anger of some kind. So Absolutely. Don't yeah. hold it in. Yeah, don't like, hold it in. Express yourself. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast. We learned a lot. I feel like we covered a lot in this episode. I feel like we did cover a lot. We started with dolphins. Yeah, we we hit some crazy times along the way. We talked about, you know, open minds and open hearts, being nice to each other, ended with dolphins. I think it's it's a good well-rounded thing, right? I think so. Yes, well-rounded. That's that's the theme of this one. I'm going to I'm going to put that up here. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you guys for joining us um, for this episode. Definitely check us out on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that fun stuff. Um, Also tune back in next week for our next episode. But if you guys have any more questions, um, just shoot us an email, shoot us a text. I don't know, like send a pigeon bird. I don't know. Um, But yeah, have a good week.